Hi, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes. This is a podcast where we talk about plant science and rant about other things while we do it, I guess. <laughs> My name is Tegan. My name is Yoram. Hi. Um, How's it going, guys? <laughs> I, um, whoa, I think I just like burnt Yoram's brain out by screaming about medical care for the last 10 minutes. Um, I've been trying to get the flu vaccination and I just found out that my my general practitioner, my GP, who I deliberately went into at the start of the the COVID pandemic, like a week before shutdown, I went in and I said, hey, I'm specifically registering myself at this GP, at this doctor's, with the intent of being registered as a high-risk patient for the pandemic that is now spreading into this country as we speak. I have one lung. I need you to know that so that if anything happens with COVID, you put my name as like a priority. And since then, there have been a couple of instances where I've then like had to remind them that I'm a priority. So I had like a virus earlier on this year. It wasn't COVID, but it was like a mild virus. And I had to be put on like kind of precautionary antibiotics to make sure I didn't get a secondary infection in my remaining lung, which would then make me very at risk for getting COVID. So this was like done via actually an ambulance service um, who then like contacted my GP. So my GP like has heard three or four times in the last few months that I'm high risk. And I now like contacted them to get the flu vaccine because I have been struggling to get it because there's such a shortage and I've been like trying different ways. But like apparently all the 20 year olds who went to Spain this summer used it up and now it's only available for over 65 year olds and I'm not over 65 year olds. So the only way to get it is to justify that I have a pre-existing condition that puts me at risk. And I called my GP today and they were like, I'm sorry, dear, you're too young. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that is true. I, I am quite young. It's You are not wrong. Having said that, I do think I might be slightly higher risk than the average 32-year-old just because of this whole thing where I'm actually missing an entire lung. Um, and then they were like, oh my, oh, oh dear, oh, oh wow. Well, you should email us to tell you that, uh, that, that you have only one lung and then we can try and get you this flu vaccine. And <laughs> Oh my God. Dear God. <laughs> like... I don't know how many times I have to keep on saying this. Like, it's exhausting to tell people constantly. Like, I literally went to them and was like, hi, I know this is hard to believe, but like, young person here, but also with a stuffed up lung. Like, I know, doesn't look normal, kind of contradictory. I, I went and I flagged myself and having to like, still be like, guys, I'm still here. Like, just a little bit of attention on this, like, <sighs> and there's like, that response of like, oh my, you don't look like there should be something wrong with you. And then there's the response of like, when I tell a doctor, they then respond by literally telling to me to my face that if I get COVID, I will die. Which like, just in case you're a doctor and you're listening, that's not good bedside manner. Like, <laughs> I, I don't enjoy being told that I'm going to die. It's also not accurately true that I will die if I get COVID. I know people with one lung who've got COVID and they're still alive. So making that statement as a doctor, as a person with like power and the like aura of knowledge around you to a young woman who like is not a medical doctor actually fuck you like that's alarmist and that's inappropriate that's not a cool thing to say yeah yeah so that's my <laughs> my current like <laughs> oh my goodness yeah yeah i i i, I know better. that feeling from try better and be better <laughs> yes please please be 
Um, I, I also I, I know that from like some of our experiences in the family with doctors as well, where yeah, they were not helpful, not in the least bit. Um, like I have to say, I'm I'm obviously very primed for this because like I had a, a rough medical history in my teenage years, which involved a lot of doctors like telling me there was nothing wrong with me. And hey, surprise, let's ruin the story here. I had a tumor in my lung um, after two years of being told. I'm a hypochondriac, there's nothing wrong with me, basically. So I'm a little bit like sensitive to this issue, but I am kind of annoyed that I have to keep on reminding people that I might need some medical attention because I'm actually mostly physically fine. And I can't imagine how this is for people who have, you know, lower resources like energy or, you know, I can work from home, I'm wealthy, I'm physically fit. Like all of this stuff is very easy for me to do, but like, there are a lot of people who don't have such easy access and this is kind of not cool. This yeah, is definitely. Ah. Yeah. That's, that's one of my sad learnings uh, in, in this pandemic, how little we are prepared in many of our systems to deal with things that come up now to deal with high risk people who don't fit the average description of high risk, like people who are not just old or um, in nursing homes or, on already on an intensive care unit but people who have other preconditions and how we are just sort of or how the system is failing these people how i think i actually cut this from a past show but we had to quarantine for two weeks and it was all fine it's all good it was like there was a case at the child care center um and they had to close for two weeks but we were informed two weeks before the end of the quarantine about what we have to do during quarantine um and lots of things like this where by now, after months and months of the pandemic, the systems should be able to deal with these sort of things so much better than what they what they are actually. So, um, to me, it's also an endless pool of frustration looking at these, hearing tales from from you, healing tales from others, where it's um, just saying like people try try their hardest to do the right thing, and the system um, just doesn't support that at all and just today a german politician was like yeah we were all surprised about the severity of the corona pandemic it's like no 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 not all of us were surprised a majority of us were very much not surprised we were surprised at the lack of a response from politicians and from people who were actually marching in the streets against masks like the majority of people was not surprised by this don't frame this as something that nobody has seen coming and now we have to suddenly figure out what to do it's been going on for months. We Yeah, I guess, I mean, like it definitely was unexpected as far as, like, first time, lots of surprises, lots of things happening there. But, like, yeah, at some point you're like, okay, you have to stop using surprise as the response and start, like... Yeah, not eight you, months like, in. Like, if... Yeah, and again, like, that's, 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 again, the thing where, like, I would be less shocked if they, you know, forgot that I didn't, that I was missing a lung, if I hadn't actually gone there and, and flagged it. It's yeah. like, you can't pretend you forgot or you didn't know this. Like, I actually went in person and was like, hey guys, like waving my hand here. So that's kind of the thing where it's like, please stop using surprises as an excuse now. Like, admit that you're not prepared, but like, yeah. just like, oh, whoopsies. It's a bit exhausting as well. Um, And again, like, I am, I am fine. I'm like a bit annoyed, um, but also fine. But like this, these issues obviously apply much more for people who have like chronic illnesses and like physical and mental issues that go deeper. And all of you who don't know about spoon theory, I really urge you to go and look that up and think about that in the context of the current pandemic, because 
G-boy if you think your life is exhausting right now. Um, yeah, <laughs> just I cannot imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, anyway, um, <laughs> the good news of the week or the weird news of the week is um, I got an electric toothbrush. Is that exciting? That's not exciting at all. But I don't care for it. It makes my teeth vibrate and it feels like my whole skull is moving. And I think like, do you know those ads where they show you that you shouldn't shake the baby? I feel like <laughs> I feel like that's what's happening. And um, what what are like, your teeth, your babies, and you're shaking them with the toothbrush? Is that the image? Well, like the the thing is, you have a baby and you shouldn't shake it because it's like we it have breaks. an ad in Australia where there's like a baby doll and they show somebody shaking it, and then they open the doll's head, which is also quite gruesome. And inside, there's like a broken egg inside, and it's like you know, babies' brains are very fragile, and if you f shake a baby, they can get seriously hurt. Like this is yeah, actual. Don't shake a baby. I mean, it's a, like actual real problem. That's why there's a public service announcement for it. But I don't know. Have you used an uh, electric toothbrush? Like my teeth are vibrating, and I don't think that teeth should vibrate. I, 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 we, I think a year or so ago, we we got an electric toothbrush um, that has like ultrasonic capabilities or something like it's one of I the fancy ones that, that yeah they like say they like something something and then i felt it was also quite intense the first time i used it but then i got used to it and by now i don't feel like the vibration in the entirety of my skull but um can you just like smile at me like nobody else can see this but okay i've got to say yarm has very beautiful teeth like I, they're I really shining they're, no, they're not they're not that great but like <laughs> no they are quite white in fairness um, i mean I it helped like i had severe like coffee stains and everything on it because I, i'm drinking a lot of coffee and i don't know if it's the ultrasound or if it's just the thing has a timer so i'm i'm more likely to brush my teeth for a long period of time um the thing is i think i also find that like manual teeth brushing i found it very soothing so i find it quite um yeah it's like therapeutic it's like self-soothing where i'm brushing my own teeth um But I know that also means that I just brush the same spot for like one minute and 58 seconds. You and do I'm have like, okay, one do the very shiny in. tooth. That is true. Like that's yeah, what they called you at the Institute back then. Shiny, shiny tooth, tooth vegan. Um, but it's like the ones at the back as well, which is not even, I mean, I'm getting no visual effect. I'm not luring men in with my shiny molars. Um, <laughs> <so> <laughs> but it's definitely, it's, it's, uh, I've, I'm also at a stage now where I get excited about these sort of things, about having like a nice toothbrush. I recently discovered now that my local drugstore, they're selling cleaning detergents in the form of tablets. So you don't buy like plastic packaging and water. You just oh, yeah. buy like a little tablet, drop it in the container that you already have. And then you have cleaning solutions of various kinds. And it was my exciting discovery of last week. Now that I... I mean... That's the thing. I also feel a bit morally bad because I went from getting a, like from using a bamboo toothbrush that I don't know, should dissolve in water or something to using, you know, an electric toothbrush that probably has all of the rare earth metals in it, probably only lasts three years. And, you know, you have to change the plastic toothbrush, the actual brush part, like yeah. every couple of months. So I do feel like ecologically morally guilty about that. Also, it does feel really clean despite the gross vibrations. So I think I'm going to stick with this. Like I and I don't know what the ecological footprint of um, teeth um, procedures 
are when you have to go to the dentist and you actually need to have replacements they're probably made like from like raw crude oil or something <laughs> um so when you get them you have like a carbon footprint of a diesel engine. yeah but i mean this is not like this is probably not helping my, my teeth are already all rotten like everything i have is filled um or dead from falling off my bicycle onto my face <laughs> um so this is more like yeah cosmetic honestly and as you said like i've been just drinking i just stopped drinking water i just because my i'm not in an office now i'm in a very cold house um in london which doesn't have the best heating so i just drink tea all day to stay warm and unsurprisingly my teeth are turning brown so it was really vanity <laughs> related um yeah i guess i saw the end of lockdown and i was like one day i'll have to go and smile at people again no, I'll wear a mask. What am I even talking about? Yeah, exactly. Like, wh why do we care about teeth? We have masks now. And honestly, this country, not known for the beautiful teeth. Like, <laughs> stereotypes. That's how you can why stand it out. Not? It's like, there's shiny tooth thinking again. Uh, <laughs> Roaming uh, the streets of London. <laughs> uh, I think I just got really vain about my teeth after. So, there's, I don't know if I discussed this before, but it having smashing my face in really made it clear to me how much our perception of ourself is based on what other people tell us because the doctor told me you know like obviously my teeth shifted a bit but also um i smashed my cheekbone and one of my eyes could have dropped and i have now looked at that eye more times in the last six months than i've looked in my entire life and i became convinced that my eye was migrating upwards on my face this is not even possible possible not even like the injury means it could only go downwards. Gravity also means it could only go downwards. But I was convinced that that thing is making its way up and it's like just going to keep on going and like into my brain. And I actually went back to the doctor because I was like, dude, I think I think it's going up. And he's like, this is, this just can't, it just can't happen, Tegan. Like it's just, but it's like no matter how, if you look for a long enough time at any part of your body, you'll just be able to see the flaws and how something's not even and... Yeah, that's yeah. why I'm very happy that I wear glasses. And when I go and get myself ready in the morning or in the evening, I take off my glasses. And so I can't see all of the imperfections. So I just have like a smushed face and I can imagine the beauty that is underneath all the blur. Shall we talk a little bit about plant science, Tegan? Yeah, let's talk about plant science. Why not? <laughs> It's the paper of the week. And this week you chose a paper, Tegan. What did you choose? Um, I chose something a bit weird. I chose something that's not original research. It's actually kind of a review format. And it is called Safeguarding a Global Seed Heritage from Syria to Svalbard um, by Olati Westingen, Charlotte Lusty, Maria Yazbek, Ahmed Amri and Asmud Azdal. And it was published in Nature Plants, I think, last month. And this one was shared as a accessible link via Nature Plants Twitter, which is how we got access to it. So thanks, guys, for sharing it. Um, and if you're playing at home, a lot of people are now sharing their papers on Twitter. So if you can't find a paper on ResearchGate, go and check the title on Twitter. There's a top tip for you. <laughs> <laughs> It's literally how I find half of the things these days. If they're like more recent, they're often not on ResearchGate, but they might be share it on twitter yeah yeah that's true um it's also great to find the handles of the original authors if you want to get in touch with them um so the, the title of the paper is a great thing to search for on twitter 
And I guess the reason I chose it is because I've always been a little bit obsessed with this idea of the Svalbard seed vault, um, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I never really read anything about it. I just kind of knew of it in you know a distant part of my mind. Yeah, and I thought same. this was a nice way to like force myself to read something on it and actually understand what it's doing. So yeah. maybe like Yoram can start by introducing the idea of seed vaults. Yeah, seed vaults or gene banks are something that sounds to me like something from a sci-fi movie. Like you would imagine like in a in a distant future, somebody is like, we have to travel to this vault and this vault contains all of the genetic information that we need. And then there will be like an action plot of like evil people and good people racing to the vault to get the genetic information to restart humanity or something. Um, uh, but that's exactly what like these seed walls or gene banks as they're called are they are storage of genetic information and genetic information in this case is just like seeds of plants that contain dna and therefore genetic information and the just seeds is here with air quotes because these seeds are very important um yeah. storing them is not something that we do just for fun or because we are obsessed with backups um, which by the way everybody should be but um <laughs> A little dig there at all no no i didn't mean it like that <laughs> but um it's something i had to think of about when we were when we were writing up the story um that's pretty much a story of backups as well um but these these seeds hold the information not only of the, the plants that we're growing right now but also of all kinds of relatives that we used to grow or wild relatives that are related to the things that we grow um, and they are very important because we if we want to study how things evolved then it's really good if we have a record of how plants were before and usually the plants like the, the weed that was grown 200 years ago is not grown anymore today on the field so we need somewhere where we store this information that's in a gene bank and then we can compare today wheat and 200 year ago wheat and then see what changed and we can even use that then in breeding and we can say we need sort of fresh input into our breeding lines and look we have our storage here we can just like take something that's a close relative something that we used to grow but we we stopped because we didn't need that anymore um, and we can cross that back into our production lines and make them better um so like to really like molest the hell out of Yoram's backing up metaphor, it's the idea of like making sure not only your current computer is backed up, but also all that crap you stored on like your old, um, you know, computer that doesn't work anymore and all of those floppy disks is also backed up, but also moved towards kind of current, like onto a hard drive, not in floppy disks. So the aim of the seed vaults, they also kind of want to keep the seeds like fresh, that they can be germinated, that they, they stay alive basically, which... Yeah, obviously makes a lot usually of these gene banks go through several cycles regularly of um, testing the seeds if they still germinate and then if necessary regrowing them to get larger quantities of high quality seeds to store them again um, so a gene bank is not like a, a backup you can drop that on a hard disk and then store it somewhere and you don't really need to touch it anymore a gene bank is something that you have to occasionally sort of rejuvenate kick back into life for a bit and then you can store the seeds again um and okay so the most famous of these as far as plants go is the one at svalbard and i mean we can do some quick facts on that but it's basically if you go as far north as you possibly can um there's a kind of little doorway into the mountain and 
that's where the seed vault is. So you have this kind of door to the outside. We can um, put a fit photo of that on the in the show notes. Um, but then you go into the vault, which is actually deep inside a mountain. And the the location is very specifically chosen. So it's very high above sea level, 130 meters, so that as we inevitably keep on screwing over this planet and the sea level rises, it's safe. It's really deep into this mountain, which means it's um, kind of... Uh, <laughs> what's the word? It's, it's the- uh, insulated from the yeah. changes of the world. Um, and it's also permafrost where like this, so it's like hard, icy ground. So everything is kind of always cold all the time, which also makes it very easy to keep the plants, the seed stocks cold, which is helpful. Yeah, and it's very dry as well. Um, so it has the perfect conditions, like min- minus 18 degrees Celsius, um, very dry, and that's perfect for conserving um, seeds. And yeah, th- I think they do have um, a climate control system, but the idea is if, if that ever fails, if ele- electricity is cut out, um, it won't heat up because it's in the permafrost and it will just stay at the temperature and like maybe cool down a little bit but it will it won't thaw it won't like if you would have the same play the same setup in in germany and the electricity would fail the thing would go to room temperature and your your conditions would not be kept anymore and you you would lose this the storage capacity yeah i didn't actually look into it but i assume that not all of the the seeds are kept at minus 18 i'm sure there's some different conditions for different seeds i did not think, look into that i i think from what i read um there's sort of one one type of condition like they have i think four volts um and they're all identical they're all at minus 18 and that's sort of the internationally um agreed upon storage condition um is, is what i read um and it might not be the optimum for all kinds of seeds but i think it's a best compromise where i think most things should survive but um yeah and they've got over one million samples so they're making a compromise between quite a lot of different types of plants so i guess yeah yeah you gotta you gotta compromise at some point um and Yoram, you have a fun fact about this what do they not have in the svalbard <laughs> they you, you might think like we talked about things that are currently in use and uh, across the world we have gm modified or like genetically modified crops that are in use but these and don't end up in um in Spitsbergen, in, in Svalbard, in the seed vault, because according to Norwegian law, it is forbidden to introduce any genetically modified organisms for storage and safekeeping into the country. So all of these um, varieties, they have to be backed up elsewhere. They, they don't... Where are up. they? I, I mean, th- there are many other backups that, that exist. I mean, I guess all seed companies have their own backup systems. Um, mm. Then there is gene banks across the world. I think in the paper that we're talking about there's a map where you can see with like circles all of the places that send samples to um the uh, Swal- um, Svalbard Svalbard uh, seed vault and it's really distributed across the, the world like there's a lot of like Europe Northern America but also Central and South America African countries um, um Central and-, and Southeast Asia and even Australia there was even like also a comment in the paper that said that some gene banks are managed by non-governmental organizations. And I didn't think that was, that's maybe not the traditional NGO. It might actually be these companies, right? So, you know, private gene banks, yeah, by seed companies that are not held within these kind of larger international seed bank consortia. Yeah. 
Um, and then you have often you have these local seed banks like in Germany there is one in Gatersleben that's quite famous for its large um, collection um, and then there's one that we're actually going to talk a lot about today and it's called ICADA the International Center for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas um, and that's a, a, a place in the Middle East a, a gene bank that contains the largest collection of crop diversity that's uh, originally originating from the Fertile Crescent um, And I think you're gonna have to explain what the Fertile Crescent is. Yeah, Fertile Crescent. Um, that's the area that's um, sort of where the first domestication of wheat happened and a lot of other grains and crops um, in the area between the Euphrates and Tigris, these two rivers, um, plus uh, the surrounding areas that sort of forms this crescent shape. I forgot now what, what that is today. Um, but this is sort of the area where one of the earliest um, spikes in human agriculture happened um, where a lot of the crops that we're actually still using today were first sort of domesticated and put put in use um, so it's a historically very important area because that's where we get got our wheat from and in the plant book club we actually write a book about the agriculture uh, archaeology mm -hmm. uh, of of that like how many um, species and grains and whatnot were actually already in use thousands of years ago um, and traded and traveled from this area across the world. Yeah, so just as an example, um, like as an idea of how important this is, like the Fertile Crescent is also called the Cradle of Civilization. So apart from like agriculture coming out of there, there's also things like the wheel and irrigation and writing. So like a lot of, you know, yeah, really the Cradle of Civilization is, I mean, maybe a little bit hyperbolic, but there's a lot of things that happened there. And obviously from a plant point of view, it's really important because there are just a ton of like these original races and wild relatives to many of the crop species um, that we, we use now, but which we probably don't have the old relatives um, in use and growing in the field. So um, yeah, super important. So things like barley, lentil, fava bean, wheat, chickpea, All of these are kind of from that area. And yeah, I think it's obviously got a ton of plant diversity, which is very important for safeguarding food security in our future. And it was a major center of scientific collaboration. Um, the, the researchers at the International Center for Agricultural Research in the Dry Areas, ICADA, they worked together with over 50 countries um, to get all of these seeds in their collections and to help other places as well with the conservation efforts especially countries of sort of um now my geology terminology is very weak i think it's sub-saharan is that a right word like it's it's goes it goes from like central to northern africa um towards the middle east and i think into parts of um uh, asia as well um sort of where you have these very dry areas um and where sort of similar crops grow in these areas and um the ikada was a center where they worked together on the conservation um and they provided free access to the seeds to, for breeders and researchers so it was very important or it is very important it still exists but it had one major problem the ikada um, yeah i mean not a problem at the time but uh something that like became problematic and that it's located in syria um, 30 kilometers south of Aleppo and this of course became um, like difficult when the Syrian war broke out so I mean there's actually quite an interesting history here that I embarrassingly wasn't aware of that 
like leading up to these Syrian conflicts, there was actually a success, like a lot of droughts, um, which was, I mean, linked to climate change as the cause, but of course impacted food security and stability in these regions. And these food security issues are believed to be one of the the contributing factors um, to the uprising and to the the war in Syria. But of course, when things when there was a lot of conflict. Um, this became a problem for this Syrian seed vault because it became more and more difficult for scientists to get access and to really um, ensure that everything was kept intact and safe. And I guess we'll get a bit more down into that a little bit later on. Yeah, so the, de the decision that they had to make was that they had to um, relocate and they had to save the collection that they had. And so already when the global seed vault in Svalbard opened in 2008, Ikada was one of the very first ones um, that sent, started to send their samples there in duplicates. So they, they had still their own collection, but they sort of sent a backup copy um, to Svalbard, to Norway, where it was then put into the very cold vault um, for long storage, for long-term storage. That was good that they had already started the backup before the war breakout. So that was like in 2011. But before 2011, they had already deposited over 100,000 accessions from Ikarda to Svalbard. So they already had like... A significant amount of of um, accessions backed up. Uh, in the in the following years, they managed to get uh, over fourteen thousand additional accessions um, from Syria, so additional samples from Syria um, to Svalbard. And you have to imagine that this happened during the war. They were surrounded by troops on several times, or like different troops. I tried to look up what actually happens in the Syrian war. And uh, I'm not even going to try to get into this because there's uh, a number of different factions that um, fought uh, with and against each other in, in different sort of uh, alliances. And... Um, that like you have to imagine doing research trying uh, saving your collection under these circumstances where um, there is a, a very complicated war raging around you so yeah they managed to like in the middle of a war zone to extract these these seeds from the collections and because they had to sort of roll with opportunities when they could get something out of the country actually um, they sent them to Svalbard, but in Svalbard there's um, a rule that they only open usually twice a year. They open the doors for the vault because every time they, they open, it's a risk for the collection. So they try to reduce that risk by only opening um, on on rare occasions. But because they were collaborating with Icada as well and they were trying their, their best to help them to save this collection, um, they actually opened... Um, specifically just for their ch uh, shipment sort of out of schedule so they could get them in there um, whenever they were able to get the samples out of Syria, um, which showed, like, we was uh, um, an act of really cool collaboration, like international collaboration between researchers. Yeah, so, I mean, it basically worked. By 2014, they had managed to get 80% of the unique um, collection from Ikarda into Svalbard. And I quite liked the fact that they kind of kept this secret operation to move the seeds out of the country quite hush-hush. So it wasn't until, um, I think, April 2014, when they had already made this last deposit of what they could manage, um, that this became known to the media. So basically nobody was told about it before them. Um, and yeah, at that point, they basically had to stop sending stuff because things just got too tricky. And in 2015, Irkada as a... Um, a corporation had to basically leave Syria 
because of the war and they relocated to nearby countries. So they went to Morocco and Lebanon. Yeah. Not super nearby. <laughs> yeah, I think in Lebanon they already had um, a sort of a dependency that they then extended the, the scope of it. And in Morocco, um, they worked together with local researchers to establish a new sort of setup uh, for their collection. Um, and what I found interesting in the paper, they also mentioned that when once they left, they, they continued to monitor their seed bank remotely. They couldn't be there anymore. But, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the physical site still existed. Um, so they monitored them. I, I imagine that they have sort of some internet access for maybe cameras or at least for like temperature control and so on. But then uh, in 2017, this access was also cut off. And by now, we don't know what the state of this uh, collection is. But they're pretty sure that it's not ideal, right? Because yeah. there have been like some major power cut-offs across the region. So it's unlikely that the power has maintained in the facility, which means that there's probably been some, some breakdown and, you yeah. know, so things are not staying cold and fresh. I think also... Not as cold in Syria as it is in the Svalbard, so you do need to have the cooling. Yeah, exactly. So for the entire effort um, that they put in there, the researchers um, at ICADA, they were awarded the uh, um, award from the Gregor Mendel Foundation or an award from the Gregor Mendel Foundation. Um, so they were also internationally recognized for the work that they did there. Yeah, and then since 2015, these researchers that had um, moved to Morocco and Lebanon started like also taking the backups from the Svalbard back and sort of starting to regrow those accessions to have fresh seed stocks. Because if you remember, like there's also the purpose of this is not only to have the stocks, but to make them available for people. So you want to keep them fresh, but also you want to have you know healthy chunky amounts of them and then they also then resent fresh copies back to the Svalbard so like constantly doing this backup but then also keeping everything kind of maintained and current and with all the efforts of um, putting something in long-term backup but also moving um, remaining collections then from Syria to Lebanon and Morocco um, they have now 97% of the original collection that they had in the Syrian side um, still uh, at their hands it's not fully available to everybody yet because they don't have the numbers of seeds of all of the the samples so um, it's not up to the same sort of quantity that is available but they have 97 ma managed to maintain 97 percent of um all of their samples which i find quite impressive um to, to do during a war yeah i mean obviously doing like the really bulk regeneration sort of needs special systems and facilities to you know dry the seeds properly and count them and clean them and weigh and pack them and you know do all the checks of their viability so this is like a very large operation but um yeah, it's going well, and they're going to continue with efforts through till 2030, I think it's projected, to fully regenerate the entire gene bank, if possible, and make everything, once again, available. Uh, and the the thing where this is a, is a research paper is um, I th uh, the opportunity to learn in, in this whole story. Um, because this was sort of uh, the, the long-term seed storage was uh, in, in Svalbard was established in 2008, so relatively recent. And now the story of Ikada was one of the very first cases where they could actually test the system and could actually um, see if what they had de de um, decided on internationally, if that actually works. Um, and throughout amazing international collaboration and the entire system, the way they set it up, it 
proved itself. It worked. They managed to like from a collection that was was at the at the brink of being destroyed uh, from from war. They managed to retain ninety seven percent of the samples um, and keeping keeping this genetic information available to humanity, which otherwise could have been lost. So um, it, it worked very well, and it's also thanks to a, a number of international treaties in the paper that actually go into in, in great detail into these treaties. There's something called the Plant Treaty, which is a big international treaty signed by 146 parties across the world. Um, so um, if you want to read more about that, check the paper. It's actually written in a, in a very interesting way. Um, and yeah, so this is sort of a very nice and positive story, despite the fact that it's like they they had to work because of the war, but it also showed that the researchers managed to work together on an international scale um, and managed to yeah safeguard very important information. Yeah, and just as a reminder about why that's so important, so. I mean, we have just so many different types of plants in the world, but actually the amount of plants that we eat compared to even all the ones that are edible is quite a small portion. Like most of our human calories from plants come from just a handful of different plant species. But there's been a lot of discussion, especially in more recent years, about how we might need to diversify these these food sources in order to make sure that we have food security, especially with a growing population and also in a, a changing world where you know things are, are getting less... How, as they have been in in the past year so this is where like wild relatives of crops can come in handy but like on top of obviously the food we've also had this discussion before that you know a lot of the medicines that we're using are based on on plant chemicals so there's just all of this diversity that we have in plants that has so much value to humans still so even from a completely utilitarian point of view ignoring the beauty of the plants as their own organisms we humans can get a lot out of them, so like keeping them around is really in our best interests. So, yeah. yeah, there was a paper safeguarding a global seed heritage from Syria to Svalbard by Ola Westingen. Um, Charlotte Lusti, Mariana Yazbek, Ahmed Amri, and Asmund Asdal, published in Nature Plants in the beginning of November. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. Um, there was a publication that came out just a couple of days ago in Nature Biomedical Engineering, um, which is actually not a paper I usually look much at, but um, I think it might have been in the Nature Briefing. Uh, but it's that there's a study that shows that there's a possibility to detect COVID before symptoms set in, in some instances up to, I think, six days even before symptoms set in, based on um, smartwatches. <laughs> So smartwatch data, which is tracking your pulse um, and your activities. Um, yeah, heart rate, I think, is, is the key, but also daily steps and, and your sleeping. And this allowed um, the detection of COVID before it came in. Um, there's a few caveats here. This is based on people who had COVID. And um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's after they got COVID. But I think it's, it's quite an interesting thing. Yoram, you have interest in all these new technologies and wearables and stuff like that like do you see a future where we're using these in more predictive ways to look at our health and see how things are going i think it's it's technically definitely possible i mean um i don't know actually what other companies are doing i know like the apple watch stuff and they 
they introducing every year they introducing new sensors into the into the watches and they every year in the presentations they say they work together with um, um, doctors to do studies and all sorts of things to my knowledge there hasn't been although like i don't really follow medical publications there hasn't been that many publications that were based on data from um, portable health sensors but that could also still take a while i mean it yeah, hasn't I guess been three years new. yeah so this is this is also they only have 32 individuals who actually got covid so the original cohort was like over 5000 people but of them only 32 got covid and of them only 26 had these alterations so it's quite it's i mean it's very very small um and it's not something and this is again it, it's re, it's retrospective it's like once you have covid looking back on that um it doesn't mean that it's predictive as far as i can tell and i we know from, from our Sorry, research guys. right that we like it takes a while between doing the experiment which in this case would be gathering a lot of data from individuals from their smartwatches and then doing the analysis and then writing up a paper and then publishing it and having it peer-reviewed. So I don't expect any major stories to come up now. Like I think the Apple Watch can do an uh, an ECG for a year now or something like this and can sort of oh, yeah. automatically do this from time to time. Um, and the data from that, so the data can't be older than a year or two by now. So I guess to to answer the question, your, your question about like, will that tell us more in the future? I guess so. I don't know how we want to handle this with privacy. Like, oh, yeah. do we want to give all of this data to a big private company that then grants access out of the kindness of their hearts to researchers to work with it? Um, or do we have to come up with this different systems? Will this work at all? I have no idea, but I think technically it's it's very promising. It's very cool. I find it like, even if I ignore the, the issue of the big data, I find it quite interesting from a personal point of view. Like, I did have a friend who told me that they had a resting heartbeat, which was very high for a few days. And they think that they had potentially got COVID at that time. So they were feeling very low. They had a high resting heartbeat and they had a mild fever, but nothing, you know, it's like a young fit person our age. That's possible that they did have COVID. They didn't get any testing, so I don't know. Um, but like personally, also, I, I do get anxiety sometimes about my breathing. And I have like this little oxygen meter, which tells me what my blood oxygen percentages are. And obviously there's some caveats here. These machines are, are quite bad um, and not not great with non-white people also. So not not ideal, but I find that that helps me from an anxiety point of view. If I'm feeling like I'm not breathing properly, but I can see my oxygen levels are still in a reasonable range, that's good. So I can see this kind of stuff feeding back in that way to optimize the way I work and also the way I judge myself while I'm working like you know maybe I'm at work and I'm thinking oh, I'm not being very productive today and I'm like mentally beating myself up for not being productive and then I say oh yeah but actually like you had a mild fever as measured by your Apple watch you were probably a bit sick maybe yeah. that's reassuring yeah yeah that, that's you know. definitely like I I'm, I have a like a very old by now Apple watch but they can just measure my my heart rate um and it's definitely sometimes uh interesting like luckily I didn't have many conditions now where or, or, or cases where I would feel like my heart is racing and I would want to have a readout luckily I didn't have that but I I could um so that's like just yeah. Like, I mean, from from a very like biased, like from a female point of view, I I've talked about this with my female like my menstruating friends before, and often we have the thing where like, yeah, I was feeling really crappy for two days, and then I got my period, and it was actually reassuring because it was like, there's a reason why I was feeling crappy, and it wasn't 
Yeah. Because when you feel crappy and you can't explain it, it's a little bit upsetting. And then it's like, oh, there's a reason that actually makes me feel better. And I know that it will last one more day and then I'll be fine. That's kind of a... Yeah, definitely. So Another thing that we could use to test for uh, like COVID in large populations is a story that I read on Twitter um, about, do you know Yankee Candles? Um, (gasps) I saw it. I saw, I actually had this flagged as well. Um, Yeah, beautiful. (laughs) You tell the story. Yeah, the story is that Yankee Candles, like I I don't know the brand, but I'm I'm told that there are these very expensive and very um, well-known brand of um, um, fragrant candles. What is the word for that in English? Uh, Yeah, scented candles. Scented scented candles, yeah. And they're very intense. Like I I heard people say that, yeah, you light one and like your entire house smells like the candle. It's very intense. But in the last couple of months, for some reason, there's more and more one-star reviews piling up on on their online shop from people saying that they bought the candle, they, they, they lit the candle, and they couldn't, they didn't smell anything. The candle didn't work. They want their money back because stupid candle didn't smell of anything. Um, and that came up in the last couple of months. And um, that seems to be... I mean, the obvious explanation is that people who got COVID lost their sense of smell. And instead of thinking something wrong with, with myself, like I can't smell anything, it was the candle that I bought is not working. So I give it, I'm going online and giving it a one-star review. Um, yeah, just to, to give some credit here, um, there was a post originally by Terry Nelson on Twitter at Terry Draws Stuff. Terry is with an I saying, you know, there are all these angry ladies reporting it. And then the second is, I wonder if they're feeling a little hot and nothing has much taste for the last couple of days. And then in response to that, Kate Petrova, so at Kate underscore PTRV, um, did some data visualization and showed this drop in um the average star rating of the scented candles on amazons which occurred in basically post-covid times um and then also showed an increase in the amount of comments where people were saying that there's not enough smell in these candles which again happened post-covid so it's a nice nice example of data vision as well as a, a kind of funny thing about the human condition i guess i didn't even know the visualization so yeah that's 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 really cool i just heard the story about um yeah the spike of unhappy customers because they couldn't smell the scented candles anymore i wonder if at one point we will have um machines like trained algorithms that can pick up from all of these cues um sort of this this random thing that suddenly there is a uh an increase in bad ratings for a scented candle and that they can sort of integrate all of these small points to do sort of like mapping of a pandemic or things like that. Um, I mean, that's the big data question. Um, there's actually just an update. There's a reply from Moritz Wagner um, 20 at Moritz Wagner 20, which is also looking at the UK Amazon perfume version. So perfumes also started getting less great reviews after the, the oh pandemic my. really oh my. took off in the UK. So wow. But wow, people. <laughs> but I mean, I do, I, I do remember at the start of the pandemic, this loss of taste and smell was kind of thought as, as, as a weird side effect. Um, like not so common and now it's the major one it's one of you know it's like shortness of breath fever and this loss of taste and smell this is really the one of the dominant symptoms it's also what what helps me like i'm i'm having a little bit of a stuffed up um, nose and throat in the last couple of days Um, but i can still taste my food and that reassures me that i might not have covid 
I, I mean, I can't, get, I can't get tested uh, these days without having proof that I was exposed to somebody who, who was tested positive. So um, I have no way of knowing apart from a little bit of reassurance for myself that I can still taste my spicy food and my, my fragrant food. Um, so at least I have that going for me. But yeah. Um, and just in case you want to look at visualizations about COVID because you're a sucker for things like that, um, just as a reminder that there's a site called Information is Beautiful. Um, just Google Information is Beautiful and it has also some some COVID information and it's it's basically a site of very beautiful um, data vids, which is nice. Yeah. Um, I I just talked about something about machine learning, so I'm going to go with that fact next. Um, and that is something that's making the rounds now in also sort of popular science uh, articles that I found, um, that a researchers managed to use machine learning for um, protein structures. Uh, and there's sort of two things I want to explain here. First is like machine learning, like the deep mind is something that... Um, was in the news over the last couple of years because um, that's the machine learning algorithm. I think it's even like a team of, of researchers, computer researchers, who made algorithms that were able to play chess and especially Go really well, like the, te the, the game Go that um, made the news for weeks where um, the best human players were uh, tr uh, playing against the machine um, actually, I forgot who won, but I think the machine won some games or I think, the majority yeah, I think of games. Chess, um, humans, computers have been able to beat humans in chess for ages now, but Go was something that was still holding out. And I think it's just because there are so many different options. Like there's just, it's something like this where, I don't know. I don't really know how Go works, but this is the one that was holding out. And now the computers can win, maybe? I think at least they, they, they fought very well, the computers. Um um, then <laughs> we're doing so well at experting on this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the point is the point of the story is not the, the games. I mean, the games were also not the point of the research. They were sort of training exercises Wait, um, to to see what you can do, like how like you needed increasingly complex tasks that you can throw at your at your algorithm to see how it works to improve it so you can go to the next level of complexity and that's why they started with chess with which as you said is something that hasn't been a major problem for 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 years went to games like go and now they went to protein structures which was one of their actual goals and protein structures are incredibly complicated um i as a protein scientist i sort of knew that like getting a good structure getting a good idea what a protein actually looks like in a 3d space is hard but researching this this uh, story, I read numbers that there is like um, a, one Google of um, possibilities for an average protein, uh, the way it could fold because of all the amino acids, how they can interact with each other. How much um, is a Google? A, a, a one Google is a, a, a one with 300 zeros. Okay. So it's an incredibly large number. Um, and that's why... Um, computers weren't very good at giving us accurate predictions. Like there were, there are some, there was some software, but um, the majority of information still came from experiments. Um, so X-ray crystallography and other methods, where they would actually, in an experiment, measure what the protein looks like and then calculate um, a three D structure from it. And now this DeepMind machine learning algorithm was able to resolve these structures just as well as experiments could. Um, so they ran them with like increasingly complicated protein structures 
and manage to get very high scoring. So there's like a way you can calculate how accurate that is. And um, the most complicated protein structures, they were just a little bit um, uh, worse than experimental data, but not by far. Mm -hmm. um, and for all sort of simpler proteins, they were as good or better than experimental data, which is a major leap for protein research because protein structures, they define pretty much everything that happens in a, in a living organism. It's like drug receptor wow. interaction. What a bias. You're just revealing your disgusting pro-protein pro agenda here, Yoram. Absolutely. I'm very much biased. Like without proteins, none of the stuff would happen. We would still have like RNA-based metabolism and that would suck, to be honest. Yeah, I'm all about the RNA, baby. That's yeah. where it's at. Um, yeah, I haven't looked into this so much. I'm a little bit suspicious of the machine learning stuff um not just because of the terminator but just like okay um because it, it also <laughs> tends to have names like deep mind like how am i supposed to take something seriously when it's called deep mind i just yeah i don't no, know but you, you, um, you're raising an important point like in in the way people reporting this now um they're very often anthropomorphizing so humanizing this algorithm like some people said, like oh, yeah. it's it's interesting to see how the the algorithm learns and how it sort of develops an intuition for protein structures at one point, and all of that is is BS. The algorithm doesn't have an intuition. We trained it on a major data set, like a lot of data uh, is what we put in there. We trained it with that, and now it's a good thing to predict protein structures. But it doesn't have a consciousness or. Um, anything like that but in in the reporting because it sounds cooler we tend to give it human characteristics and we tend to think like this is now like a little conscious piece of algorithm that's sitting there in the computer and we feed it protein sequences and it spits out structures and um it does nothing but that all day and is aware of that and none of that is true like it's 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 a piece of software where now you drop in the sequence on one end wait a little bit and you get a structure out the other end just like you would do with any other piece of code it's just the way the code works is machine learning yeah but i mean this is also and i'm gonna definitely show my ignorance on this topic now but like also one of the problems here is that often you're training on a data set and then you're testing by removing a percentage of the data set and training on the other part and seeing if it can predict that remaining part. But like that remaining part was still part of the original thing that you used to design the algorithm. So like then extrapolating to like new unknowns doesn't always work as well. So that's kind of something which I'm not sure. And again, I haven't read this article, so I haven't yeah. looked into it, but I don't know how I, they did it in DeepMind, but this this question know. of training uh, sets is, is, is very interesting because um, I've... For, for my work now, I had to look into this a little bit and I came across some like fun uh, fun things like um, they trained an image recognition algorithm to recognize different types of fish um, and uh, different types of like non-fish animals. Um, and then when they did the training, they got very good scorings. But when they looked at what the algorithm was actually looking at was... The, um, was fingertips because all of the pictures of fish were pictures where um oh no like uh what's the word fishermen held them in their hands in front of the camera so the thing that was the easiest to distinguish um a fish from a horse was see if you can see fingertips at the edge of the object and so wow. the algorithm was really good at finding these fingertips sneaky little computer so that's like the other thing i've also heard i heard also a story about people you know using it in one location or one scenario and then it, the same thing not working in another scenario that should be very similar 
And the, one of the problems there is like, it's a bit of a black box what's happening in between. So like, you know, you then have to work out in that case, it would have taken them some time to then work out that the problem was the fingertips. Like they would have just been like, oh, why, why is it not working suddenly, um, you know, in the wild? And then somebody had to work out, oh, the machine is looking for fingertips. But that is a little bit unclear when you're just like running this machine learning yeah. script code whatever it is i have no idea what the right words are here yeah and uh, especially when the thing is not as obvious as fingertips like when people try yeah. to use machine learning for hiring and they say look this is our company these are all the people that we hired um learn from that and then hire the best fit in the future then you get all the bias you had in the past in your machine algorithm <laughs> yeah but it's very like difficult to see that and then um, I know I'm going to get slammed as the person who was just saying I'm kind of curious about looking at my smartwatch at my pulse. But <laughs> yeah, I think like turning this stuff on humans is always a terrible idea. I think we we know any kind of like large data and then definitely adding machine learning. And um, yeah, yeah, let's just not. Yeah, but for like, I, I wish I would be still I, I would still be in research. I would love to see like um, things coming up in, in the near future where researchers could could actually use this deep mind thing now to drop their protein sequence of whatever they're studying in there and get a prediction out yeah and then work with that and i think the temporarily relevant link is that this is also really helpful for developing drugs because then you can kind of understand how different like uh drugs will fit into different receptors and stuff like that so that's kind of the the current the the, the on-trend link i would say yeah yeah um i have something which is a follow-up from something that one of us both of us talked about a while back so we came up with this idea that platypuses from australia can glow under uv light and there's just a study now coming out of an australian i think the west australian museum actually um uh, and Curtin University in, in my side of Australia, where basically um, some researchers saw this paper and then were like, oh, let's just like go around and shine a UV light at many other animals, <laughs> Australian animals. And it turns out lots of things glow. So it's not just platypuses. It's also um, so echidnas, which are like these kind of spiky, um, like a hedgehog, but cooler, obviously, because it's an echidna. Um, so it's, it's actually the closest relative of platypus because they're both monotremes, which is these weird egg-laying mammals. Um, so they light up under UV, but also the ears of bilbies, which are basically like cuter rabbits, I would say. Possums, I guess you guys know what possums are. I don't have to explain that one. Australian bats and also warm bats. Um, so all of these glow a little bit in the dark so that's kind of nice not in the dark in the uv light sorry that, that <laughs> yeah, was false I, I <laughs> started becoming pedantic again um yeah oh yeah um but yeah that that's that's really cool i do have one one last thing that i want to talk about today um and that's related to painkillers um there's an interesting uh, story there was a uh, there's a researcher um called uh, shutang ten who had a toothache when he was in the lab and so um for some reason, he thought the ibuprofen that he was taking was helping him, and he wondered what it would do to the Arabidopsis seedling that he was working with. And so mm -hmm. he prepared the solution of ibuprofen and dropped that, or like grew Arabidopsis on that. And um, as a result, he, he saw that Arabidopsis roots changed their growth, be growth behavior when grown in ibuprofen. And then 
uh, here they and their colleagues they started ex um, experimenting with all kinds of commonly used painkillers and realized that plants do actually react to painkillers used in human medicine and for some things like aspirin that's not a big surprise because salicylic acid so the active ingredient in aspirin is a plant hormone is a very important signaling molecule but many other mm -hmm. molecules were not known to be active in um, in plants and so um yeah that was just a, a, a fun um sort of observation that they had that um there is um related to auxin another major signaling compound um there are processes involved with painkillers or where painkillers change the way auxin is, is handled and that changes the growth behavior of plants. Um, that now makes them wonder, is there something that we can learn from this or for painkiller research? Is there like some other plant compounds that would also act as painkillers? Because the receptors in the plants, they, they must work with something else and maybe there's more painkillers that we don't know about yet that we can find in plants. Um, but overall, the 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 story is that they mixed ibuprofen with arabidopsis and they saw something interesting happen i think that's like a nice way also to um go on to the discussion about this idea of kind of doing random things in the lab and also making mistakes and that how that can be really helpful for research um so that doesn't sound like a mistake it sounds like kind of a deliberate like idle curiosity of using things around you but i'm sure a lot of you have already heard this but the astrazeneca vaccine um, that's coming out with the University of Oxford is has got a higher um, effectiveness of about 90% if the two doses are different. So if there's a half dose and then a full dose compared to two full doses, which gives only about 60% effectiveness. And this huge increase in effectiveness actually came from a mistake. So there was some sort of miscommunication and there was an inadvertent giving of this lower first dose. And that has given much better results than what was planned. So I think this is just like a nice reminder that sometimes playing around with things and sometimes even making mistakes can actually be a good thing to move science forward. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I would recommend now that everybody uses like whatever drug they're currently taking for their own medical oh, reason that, no, to put that on arabidopsis. Good to have that disclaimer. Like, like also <laughs> don't change your dosage of your own medicine. Like we don't recommend that. Um, yeah. We're just saying sometimes things can turn out well. Yeah. Yeah. But for you, no. <laughs> Do what the doctor tells you. Yes. <laughs> but not a plant doctor. The cat fact music. No. <laughs> Cat fact. fact. <laughs> I found a star study that um, did not surprise me. Um, it, it surprised me that it wasn't studied before, but apparently it wasn't. Um, so the study was that they did experiments with slow blinking at cats. Do you know what would happen if you slow blinked at a cat? Your cat will respect you and um, blink back at you, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's also what I, I I thought it was common knowledge because I even learned that when I got my cars that like the way you gain their trust is like you you don't stare at them aggressively, you slow blink because that's cat language for I'm not a threat, it's all fine, we're friends. It's essentially like smiling. But apparently this wasn't um studied properly. Apparently that was just anecdotal. And so now they did a, the actual research 
um, and did videos of cats and humans and the humans were actively blinking at the cats. First it was the owners of the cats and then later the researchers who were not the owners of the cats. Um, and they realized that they, if they slow blinked at the cats, that the cats would slow blink back and would overall be more relaxed. Um, and that's just uh, another piece of evidence at the relationship of, of humans and cats and their communication. I mean, I feel like we talked about this already, but I'm not sure if it's we did talk about this already or if it's just that I this sounds logical to me. I couldn't find a trace of it um, because the original study was just published. Um, it's it's fairly new. It was just published on 5th of October. And since then, we definitely haven't talked about the study. But as I said, it's, it's not something that surprised me. It's not something that I thought was um, unknown before. Um, but mm-hmm. it wasn't properly uh, methodically studied with a large number of cats and humans um that were i think it were like 21 cats in the first in one round of experiments with the owners and 24 cats um it's just such a convoluted way to justify getting 21 cats like guys if you want 21 cats just buy 21 cats it's fine the my favorite thing of the experiment the second experiment is that it was 24 cats from eight different households so um, you can make the... That's quite the a lot of cats per household still. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. I, in my opinion, the right amount of cats, but still... Um, I like to think that like seven of those households just had one cat and then all of the rest of them were in another <laughs> household. That's Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a researcher, that's where I would go to where the largest number of cats is. Um, independent of what my research field is. It's just where I would go. Um, so, yeah. I just... Just to, I'm just Googling this now. So there was apparently a, a study in 2018, why cats slow blink, blink at humans according to science. So I think... Um, Maybe we talked about that one. The, the main thing that uh, I was mad about is that I didn't think of the experiment because that went into uh, scientific reports. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have liked you to have, have that paper. Yeah. <laughs> But okay. yeah, props to researchers <laughs> for spending their days with cats gone. and doing cool research on them. Yeah, sorry, I've just gone down a hole of like looking at cats on the internet. So I think it's time to call it a day, guys. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. We're at Plants and Pipettes. On Twitter, we are at Plants Pipettes. You can also go to our website, which is www.plantsandpipettes.com. There we basically do twice a week different stories about things happening in the world of plant science. So come and check that out. And in December, I guess we'll be running a few of our advent calendar stories. So random plant stories of plants that are kind of associated with the Christmas season. Yeah. Uh, And... Yeah, please, um, please rate us, uh, and if wherever you can rate podcasts or tell your friends about the show, that always helps to to get a word across. And if you want to support us, if you like what we're doing, you find information of that in the show notes of this episode, or you go to plantsandpipettes.com slash support. And the opening and closing music is Carvana by Philip Gross, and that's all. Goodbye, guys. Goodbye. Goodbye.